When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody, and welcome once again to Dirty Sexy History. My name is Jessica Kale, and this week I'm going to ruin boots for you forever. Okay, I appreciate that needs some context. Where do I start? If you're at all interested in historical romance, one popular trope is the cross-class love story. You know the one. The staggeringly wealthy Lord Fittington Superfox falls for and ultimately marries a poor governess, a plain young woman who is anachronistically independent and very feminist, a thoroughly modern fantasy that would have been unthinkable in the 19th century, except that I just described Jane Eyre, which was published by Charlotte Bronte in 1847. It is a truth universally acknowledged that if you write romance, you can put your own spin on tropes that have been around for more than 170 years, and there are still people out there who will accuse you of historical inaccuracy. Everybody knows that cross-class love and marriage never happened. Well, everyone, that is, except for the Brontes, Austin, and, oh right, everyone else who actually lived during the 19th century. Look, believing in this myth doesn't necessarily come from a bad place. You like stories about royalty, and there's nothing wrong with that. The trouble comes from assuming that guidelines for ideal behavior for the aristocracy, based largely on property concerns and social pressure, were followed to the letter across the board, or that assuming those same guidelines applied to people of other classes who didn't have the same concerns. Securing inheritance matters less when there's nothing to inherit, and you can't lose a reputation that you never had to begin with. So by saying that no one ever broke the rules, you're actually revealing a lot about who you consider to be people. The more you get into history, the more you realize that no laws or unofficial rules were observed perfectly at all times, and no, that disnified version of the past as a time when no one stepped out of their God-given role does not reflect on the reality for most people. The people who broke the rules were not anomalies. They were actually the norm. And bringing it back around to cross-class romance, it's just common sense. Think about it. If you've ever been more or less confined with a group of people from different backgrounds for any length of time, you've seen how attraction works. Maybe it was school, a job, summer camp, or an intense three-month Vatican course on exorcism. Come on, I can't be the only one. But anytime you're thrown together with different people, you like who you like. You don't check their credentials or worry about if they're from the exact same socioeconomic background that you are. That's not how attraction works. Attraction is hard to put your finger on. It's chemical. Maybe it's magic. What it isn't is convenient. And that's something that's inspired romantic literature for actual centuries. On that basis alone, maybe you can give cross-class romance a pass. If that's not enough, well... You know I've got some real-life examples. Today, we're going to start with a reader favorite from the blog. This is the story of the courtesan and the abolitionist, Elizabeth Armistead 
and Charles James Fox. Of all the love stories in history that could be romance novels, Elizabeth and Charles must be near the top of the list. Elizabeth was born in Greenwich in 1750. By the age of 21, she was working at a high-class brothel in Soho run by the infamous Mrs. Mitchell. Her first known patron was a Viscount of Bolingbroke, known to his friends as Bully, and it was through him that she met her future husband, Charles James Fox. Though only a year older than Elizabeth, Charles had had a very different upbringing. His father was Henry Fox, Baron Holland, and his mother, Caroline, was the daughter of the Duke of Richmond. Educated at Eton and Oxford, he got an early start in politics when his father bought him a seat in Parliament at the age of 19. It wasn't long before he made waves. Critical of George III, Charles opposed the American War of Independence, and he even showed his support for the colonists by wearing the colors of Washington's army to Parliament. I bet that went over well. By the time he met Elizabeth, he had already developed a reputation of his own. Elizabeth and Charles moved in the same circles and became fast friends. They remained close as their respective careers progressed. Elizabeth became an actress, and her considerable success as a courtesan was noted in Town and Country in 1776 when they reported that she had made conquests of two dukes, a marquis, four earls, and a viscount. The truth was actually a bit more impressive. Elizabeth was indeed popular among the nobility, and her patrons over the next few years included the Duke of Dorset, the Earl of Derby, Lord George Cavendish, the Earl of Chumley, and the Prince of Wales, or the future George IV. She was known for her good nature and intelligence as much as her beauty. She was tall and statuesque, with a strong physique and large bust. She had a sharp wit and a talent for languages that gentlemen found as fascinating as the rest of her. Elizabeth knew exactly what she was doing. By the time she was 30, she had a fortune of her own that included at least one residence, carriages, and a full staff of servants. Never one to be taken advantage of, she moved from patron to patron as effortlessly as she lived, and she never fell in love. Unless, of course, she'd been in love all along. In the early 1780s, Elizabeth and Charles became lovers after a decade of friendship. It's unknown whether it was out of the blue or if they'd had feelings for each other from the start, but they quickly became inseparable. Charles was a rake known for drinking, gambling, and womanizing. He had even been involved with Elizabeth's rival, actress Mary Robinson, but he soon realized Elizabeth was the only one for him. He treated her as an equal, encouraging her interest in politics by writing to her about his position and his concerns, as well as pledging his undying love on a regular basis. The feeling was mutual. Elizabeth wouldn't see anyone other than Charles, and she quickly fell into debt because of it. Their relationship meant the end of her career, and it may have posed a threat to his. She tried to call it off, but Charles made it clear that he was serious. In one of his many letters to her, he wrote, you shall not go without me wherever you go. I have examined myself and know that I can better abandon friends, country, everything, than live without Liz. I could change my name and live with you in the remotest part of Europe in poverty and obscurity. I could bear that very well, but to be parted, I cannot bear. In spite of his status, Charles was no longer wealthy. He had gambled away most of his money and refused to use his political office for profit. Elizabeth didn't mind. 
She sold the properties given to her by her former lovers and bought a house in St. Anne's Hill, where they lived together happily for years. Still unmarried, Charles was considered quite a catch. When Charles was offered the chance at an advantageous marriage with the daughter of a wealthy banker, Thomas Coots, in 1795, Elizabeth knew it would be better for Charles, and she offered to leave, but Charles refused. He wrote, I cannot figure to myself any possible idea of happiness without you, and being sure of this, is it possible that I can think of any trifling advantage of fortune or connection as weighing a feather in the scale against the whole comfort and happiness of my life? Not only would Charles not consider it, but he married Elizabeth instead. Marrying her was considered more of a scandal than living openly with her as his mistress, so Charles reluctantly agreed to keep the marriage secret for a time. Elizabeth knew that it would hurt his career, but Charles, a radical politician accustomed to doing and saying exactly what he wanted, was less concerned. He made their marriage public in 1802, and although it caused a bit of scandal, Elizabeth was ultimately accepted by society due to her kindness and charm. When Charles passed away of liver disease in 1806, his last word was her name. He was 57, and he and Elizabeth had been together for 25 years. After his death, Elizabeth remained close with their friends, and she devoted the rest of her life to charitable works. Though they never had children of their own, Elizabeth supported a school in the nearby parish of Chertsey. By the time Elizabeth passed away in 1842, at the age of 91, her background as a sex worker had been conveniently forgotten. Her funeral was attended by scores of people from all classes who remembered her for her kindness and good works. Charles was buried in Westminster Abbey. His monument is one of the most impressive there, which is no small feat. Completed by sculptor Sir Richard Westmacott in 1822, it shows Charles being mourned by an enslaved person, he was a fervent abolitionist, and another figure representing peace. He is held in the arms of Liberty, who looks just a little bit like Elizabeth. So how's that for a good love story? Of course, there are lots of stories from this period of men who marry their mistresses, but what about maids? You'd be surprised. We'll be back with more on that shortly, but first, we're going to take it over to Dr. John for our segment, Same Shit, Different Year. This week on Same Shit, Different Year, Anthems. Anthems have been in the culture wars of late, with pundits rushing to prescribe the pitch of your patriotism. Controversy surrounded Vanessa Williams' performance of Lift Every Voice and Sing on PBS's televised Independence Day celebrations. Over the last century, James Weldon Johnson's song has come to be known in the United States as the Black National Anthem. The song's inclusion was intended to mark the recognition of Juneteenth as a national holiday and acknowledge the broader African-American history it has come to represent. Suddenly recognizing the value of national unity, certain concerned citizens demanded that only the official since 1931 national anthem, the Star-Spangled Banner, be performed at the celebrations. Strangely, the very same advocates of the unity national anthem 
didn't like it when the veteran of the 101st Airborne played that anthem instrumentally at Woodstock, or when Marvin Gaye added a little soul to it at the All-Star Game, or when Whitney Houston rendered it in the gospel style at the Super Bowl. Tough crowd, huh? The Star-Spangled Banner was written during the War of 1812 in living memory of the Revolutionary War. Lift Every Voice and Sing was written to remember Lincoln's birthday in 1900. This was in living memory of the original Juneteenth in 1865 when African Americans became free. Citizenship did not follow until 1868 and voting did not come until 1870. Lift Every Voice and Sing spread spontaneously through black schools and organizations through to the civil rights movement of the 1960s and beyond. Lawyer Francis Scott Key wrote the poem which became the Star Spangled Banner after seeing US forces resist the British naval bombardment at Fort McHenry in 1814. No one could possibly feel alienated by a poem penned by a slaveholder which celebrates that at the battle... No refuge could save the hireling and the slave. This deliberately contrasted the resistance of American freemen to the British and the enslaved people the British had freed to fight for them. Francis Scott Key's poem was not the only one with middle verses which later became uncomfortable. God Save the King, or Queen, seems to have begun life during the 18th century as verses of support for the rival Hanoverian or Jacobite dynasties. By the end of the century, the words seem to have stabilised, along with the Hanoverians, and have, by custom rather than by official prescription, become the British anthem. The British diplomatically started leaving out or rewriting the bits asking God to save the king by scattering his enemies pretty early on in the process. The contemporary version is so dull, the Celtic nations all went off and wrote their own individual anthems and most English people would prefer William Blake's hymn Jerusalem, since you don't need to know a lot of music history to know that romantic nudist radicals who see angels usually make better lyricists than drunken soldiers. Like the American anthem, the British one is sung at sporting events. In solidarity with athletes in America, many around the world have continued to kneel before games and during anthems. Some England supporters recently booed the national football soccer team for taking the knee before games. Since then, the team has continued on its most successful run in at least 25 years. No one boos when Raheem Sterling scores. British Education Secretary Gavin Williamson advocated a new contender for anthem in June, the One Britain, One Nation Day anthem the new celebration and song a part of a propaganda drive to replace multiculturalism with a monoculture while still attempting to appear inclusive and welcoming. This leads to incongruous couplets such as we've opened our doors and widened our island's shores being used to represent a nation more defined by isolationism and anti-immigrant xenophobia than at any point since the 1970s when yet another version of God Save the Queen sneered at the very institution of the monarchy and became an anthem of a more subversive type. All right, welcome back. In this half of the show, I'm going to take it up a notch with a greater class divide and a kinkier connection. 
Fasten your seatbelts for the Victorian version of Fifty Shades, the unconventional and unsanitized love story of Hannah Colwick and Arthur Munby. When Arthur Munby died in 1910 at the age of 82, he made headlines not for his death, but for how he had lived his life. He had been a friend and colleague of John Ruskin, Dante Gabriel Rossetti, and other influential artists and writers in the circles surrounding the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood. Arthur himself was an accomplished author and photographer fascinated by the lives of working-class women. His favorite subject was one working-class woman in particular, his longtime lover and eventual secret wife, Hannah Colwick. How they managed to keep their relationship secret for 54 years was anybody's guess. Arthur was a gentleman, and Hannah was a maid-of-all-work from Shropshire. Most of what we know about Hannah comes from her diaries, which she kept throughout her life. Extensive, detailed, and unflinchingly honest, Hannah's diaries offer an unparalleled insight into not only her own life, but the lives of working-class women of this period who were otherwise, and continue to be, routinely ignored. Hannah was not a woman who could easily be ignored. Born in Schiffnell to a housemaid and a saddler in 1833, she trained in domestic service and worked full-time from the age of eight. Hannah met Arthur in London in 1854 at the age of 19, and she took a job there to be closer to him in 1856. Now, Hannah wasn't working for Arthur. Although their relationship was problematic in some ways, he wasn't actually her boss. But Hannah had an arsenal of useful skills, and she prided herself on being a tireless worker, so she could basically have her pick of jobs. Hannah served as a cook, a housemaid, and a housekeeper, but she preferred to work as a lower servant because she saw the position as a way to escape the confines of traditional femininity and service. As a lower servant, her appearance wasn't an issue, and Hannah, well, <laughs> Hannah liked to get dirty. If you wrote Hannah into a book now, people would line up around the block to tell you she was too modern. She was independent, she knew her own mind, and she rejected the increasingly stifling ideal of Victorian femininity. She took pride in her position, strength, and her ability to take care of herself. Physically, she was imposing. She was five foot eight and 161 pounds of pure muscle with 13 and a half inch biceps and large, coarse hands. As Arthur was a photographer, several photos of her survive, and they all have one thing in common. With all due respect, Hannah had a resting bitch face that could turn your Earl Grey hot into a Captain Scott on ice. Too soon? Sorry. Anyway, if Hannah looked fresh out of fucks, she'd earned it. She typically worked 16-hour days of exhausting manual labor, but she wasn't the only one. While about half of all working-class women were in service, Hannah's generation was the last where large numbers of women were employed doing heavy manual labor. Until the mid-19th century, women frequently did what many now think of as men's work, working fields, pulling trucks, digging roads, fishing, and even working in coal mines. Not only did women work, but they worked hard, exhausting jobs as often and as well as men. But working wasn't all that Hannah did. Outside of her job, Hannah came and went as she pleased, visiting friends and experiencing London on her own as many other women in her position did. 
in books and movies, you always see women who aren't allowed to go into public without an escort. That wasn't the case for everybody, and it certainly wasn't the case for Hannah. She was smart, self-assured, and more than capable of handling herself. Now, Arthur appreciated working-class women, but his view of them was as condescending as one might expect for a man of his class in this period. Hannah stood out to him for her intelligence and love of poetry. She was thoughtful and extremely literate, and Munby loved to instruct her in the redemptive power of hard work. Hannah took his instruction to heart, but she didn't need it. She had taken pride in her work long before she'd met him, and his attraction to women in service complemented her love of dirty work, as difficult and ugly as it could get. Hannah was assertive and even prideful in public, but in private, she became Arthur's willing submissive in what we would now recognize as a consensual dom-sub relationship. Again, Arthur was not Hannah's employer, and although she worked for a friend of his during their courtship, Arthur was never in a position to threaten her job. Hannah could have found other employment easily if it came down to it, and their relationship had started before she took her first job in London to be closer to him. Though their relationship involved more than a little power play, they entered into it on relatively equal footing. Hannah's favorite thing was to meet Arthur in her dirt, as she described herself after a long day of scrubbing filth without bathing afterward. She intentionally sought out the nastiest chores to make herself as dirty as possible for him, something she seemed to enjoy possibly more than he did. To Hannah, degradation was her way of rejecting that Victorian ideal of delicate feminine beauty. The dirtier she was, the more capable and attractive she felt. This extended to some particularly problematic role play, and I'm going to go ahead and warn you, this is deeply offensive, but it weirdly seems to have come from a place of admiration. <laughs> anyway, in her efforts to reject that Victorian ideal, Hannah would sometimes role play in private as a black servant, going as far as darkening her skin with lead or soot. Oh, Hannah, you were doing so well. As misguided as this was, in her case, it doesn't seem to have come from a place of disrespect. Hannah found becoming someone else to be liberating. Outside the bounds of acceptable behavior, she felt free to be herself, even if what she wanted was unconventional, to say the least. Her relationship with Arthur certainly defied convention. For years, Hannah wore a short chain around her neck, locked with a padlock that only Arthur had the key to. She particularly enjoyed cleaning his boots, but she wasn't a champagne and scrub brush kind of girl. Oh no, Hannah would take Arthur's boots and lick them clean with her tongue. In her diary, she said she could tell where he had been that day based purely on how his boots tasted. For a germaphobe like me, that is basically my worst nightmare. But look, I'm not here to kink shame. As they say, there is somebody out there for everyone, and Hannah had met her match. Their differences made them an odd couple, but it's hard to imagine Hannah and Arthur finding the same happiness with anybody else. From Hannah's breathless diary entries about sneaking time with him while her bosses were away, or the delicious secret knowledge that he had passed the house and watched her scrubbing the steps, her feelings about him are more than clear. Though they lived apart during their first two decades together, she found ways to express her feelings for him. She wrote to him, sent him valentines, and even went to the excruciating lengths 
of polishing brass with her bare hands because she knew he liked them hard, rough, and red. Given Arthur's position and love of working women, it has been suggested that his instruction of Hannah in the virtues of service was enough to convince her to devote herself to work, but Hannah never needed convincing. In spite of the submissive role she played with Arthur in private, she was not afraid to assert herself or make her wishes clear. Her diary even hints that her love of being dirty outweighed his interest in seeing her that way. On more than one occasion, she would arrive intentionally filthy, and he would actually ask her to bathe. Even when she was on her own, Hannah reveled in dirt, describing it with a sensuality bordering on the erotic. In this diary entry from October of 1863, she details the pleasure she took in cleaning a chimney. I worked till eight o'clock and then had supper, cleaned away then to bed at 10 o'clock. I had a capital chance to go up the chimney, so I locked up and waited until half past 10 till the grate was cool enough. And then I took the carpets up and got the tub of water ready to wash me in. I moved the fender and swept the ashes up stripped myself quite naked and put a pair of old boots on and I tied an old duster over my hair then I got up into the chimney with a brush there was a lot of soot and it was soft and warm before I swept I pulled the duster over my eyes and mouth I sat on the beam that goes across the middle and crossed my legs along it and I was quite safe and comfortable and out of sight I swept lots of soot down and it came down over me and I sat there for ten minutes or more when I'd swept all around and as far as I could reach, I came down and I lay on the hearth in the soot a minute or two, thinking, and I wished rather that Master could see me. I blacked my face over and then I got to the looking glass and looked at myself. I was certainly a fright and hideous all over, or at least I should have seemed so to anybody but Master. I sat on and washed myself after, and I'd hard work to get the black off, and was obliged to leave my shoulders for master to finish. I got the tub emptied and to bed before 12. After 20 years as lovers, Hannah and Arthur married in secret in 1873. By then, Hannah was 40 and Arthur was 45. After 32 years as a full-time servant, Hannah finally had the opportunity to move up in the world, but she didn't want it. While Arthur encouraged Hannah to explore her new role as his wife, she refused and insisted on remaining his servant. This was not because she felt unworthy of the position, but because she had no patience for the societal restrictions that came with the change in status. She wanted to keep the freedom she'd had in service. Keeping her own last name, she lived with Arthur as his servant until 1877, when she left to return to service in Shropshire. Their relationship wasn't over, though. Arthur visited Hannah regularly until her death in 1909. Now, these are only two examples, and they're just the first two off the top of my head. There are many, many other real-life relationships that defied convention in this way. Well, maybe not with the whole bootlicking thing. But whether they ended in marriage or not, cross-class relationships were surprisingly common, We'll talk more about these in the future, but in the meantime, maybe give your favorite authors a break, okay? They're only writing in a centuries-old tradition, and those perceived inaccuracies might not be so very inaccurate after all.
Speaking of favorite authors, I'd like to take this opportunity to give a shout out to my friend Zenobia Neal on the publication of Ariadne Unraveled, which is actually out today. Now, this isn't a sponsored thing. I just love Zenobia's books, and I've been looking forward to this forever. It is a story of Ariadne and Dionysus, and if you like sexy feminist historical fiction with years of research to back it up, you've got to check it out. I've already got my copy, and I'll be reading it just as soon as I get this episode posted. This episode of Dirty Sexy History was brought to you by Romance Twitter, the imaginary arguments I have in my head while I'm in the shower, and our lovely patrons on Patreon, Melanie Baker, Michael Beckwith, Andy Christopher, Michelle Dunbar, Adriana Herrera, Howard David Ingham, and Jessica Miller. You guys are the greatest, and I cannot tell you how much we appreciate your support. If you would like to support our show, rate, review, and subscribe, and check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash dirtysexyhistory. We do still have some fun new extras coming up on Patreon, including merch pretty soon, and a sneaky travel podcast where you'll find out about even more of my neuroses from a place of perceived secrecy. If you have any suggestions for places I should go on the East Coast, give us a shout. (laughs) I did mention that's a travel podcast, right? (laughs) Anyway, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Dirty Sexy History. Photos from today's episode can be found on our Instagram, and more information about these subjects can be found on our website at DirtySexyHistory.com. This episode of Dirty Sexy History was written, researched, recorded, and produced by Jessica Kale and John Jenkins. Our sources today include... I am Davis, the harlot and the statesman. Katie Hickman, courtesans. Les Scandaleuses, Histoire d'Elcove. Elizabeth Armistead, Mrs. Fox. Mike Rendell, in bed with the Georgians. Sex, scandal, and satire in the 18th century. Hallie Rubenhold, the Covent Garden ladies. The diaries of Hannah Colick, Victorian maidservant, edited by Liz Stanley. See you guys next week.